Hello and welcome to the podcast from That's Not My Age. I'm Alison Walsh. I'm a journalist, author and blogger and I'd like to invite you to join this conversation. I'll be interviewing lots of brilliant people about life and style and getting older. It's a grown-up guide. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the That's Not My Age podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Christine Chakinska, who describes herself as an artist, designer, curator and storyteller. Her work explores the relationship between cloth, culture and race and she is the senior curator curator at the V&A Museum and lead curator of the Africa Fashion Exhibition, which is on now. Morning, Christine. Morning, Alison. It's great to be here. Yes. Lovely to speak to you today. So please, can you tell me a bit about your career? Because you were a a women's wear designer for for many years in the fashion industry. Yes, that's right. So my first degree um, was fashion and textile design, printed textile design. And um, after graduation, I went straight into industry and worked for many different brands at various levels of the marketplace, whether that's high fashion. I spent a few years working for Margaret Howell, for example, but also high street labels like Laura Ashley and many, many more in between. Um, And I've always sort of loved design and I still love the design process, the research, the sketching, every aspect of it. But uh, there came a point sort of halfway through my career where I just really, I had lots of questions um, and that sort of took me back to um, college actually. So I did an an MA in fashion and communication and that kind of introduced me to the or reintroduced me to the world of visual art. And um, rather than creating a collection at the end of my MA, I created an installation uh, that looked at this uh, relationship between cloth, culture and race. And it was really after that, and I was still designing, by the way, so I carried on designing freelance part-time. It was always part of my life. But after the MA, I really felt that there was so much more that I wanted to research, so much more that I wanted to explore for myself personally. And then that took me to Goldsmith. Um, where I studied for a PhD and my my research in some ways was inspired a little bit by my own experiences of being in the fashion world and what I knew of it but also quite inspired by my father. Um, My father was always described as a gentleman and was always very well dressed um, and my both parents were of Jamaican heritage and somehow my father didn't fit that stereotype of what Jamaican men are, you know, and that sort of left lots of questions. And so my PhD uh, began with uh, my father and his generation and the Windrush generation, questions about why um, he was always so well-dressed, why the guys, the men in 1948 were so well-dressed and um, had a certain etiquette about them. And how does that relate to Englishness or what we think of as Englishness and dress? Because for years when I worked in the fashion industry, Um, Up to that point, I was almost known as an English look designer. So even when I freelanced for design consultancies, I was still kind of designing that English look. Um, And so, yes, so the PhD kind of allowed me to explore some of those ideas, um, carried on designing. But then whilst I was writing at the PhD, I interned at the Institute for International Visual Art, which is usually known as INNOVA. And that was my first experience of curating. So I was on the curatorial team for one of their exhibitions called Social Fabric. And that's really um, where I learned so much about the art of curating. I learned more about archives, the power of archives, and, and how to tell stories through objects. That was really through that experience. And I think that all of those things somehow all led me to where I am now. <laughs> it's really quite together. strange. Yeah. All came together. But you said that you've said that you had to be convinced to take the VA position, that you were dithering about it. Why why was that? Well, you know, I I had a successful design career and to be honest with you, being in my what was then sort of 
mid I'm going to sort of tweak my age ever so slightly and say that I was in my mid 50s no, but I was probably honest, just past, I think was I 56 I can't remember but I was at that point in my kind of mid 50s where I was going towards late 50s and I thought you know what I've got maybe five more years to work I could just carry on designing retire have a nice quiet life I always dreamt of maybe getting a two-day week job in the V&A shop because like many designers I love the v I love the v you know and I go I used to go to all the exhibitions for example and I sort of spent a lot of my life in that space so I my plan was to carry on designing retire maybe try and get a job in the shop um and so I was sort of dithering I kept thinking do I can I make a switch at 56 into a, a different arena or should I stay doing what I know and what I love? And I, you know, I've drawn for um, almost every day of my working life. I, I've drawn sketch with a pencil, you know. Can I give that? What's life going to be like if I'm not drawing every day? Because really, whilst I'd worked with museums on specific pro- um, projects, I'd never, never worked in an office environment. I'd never worked in an archive before. Um, so this was all new. And then, um, thank goodness I made the leap. (laughs) Thank goodness I made the leap. But it did did take a lot of hand-holding from sort of various girlfriends. And, you know, I think we all have sort of wise, older, sort of almost surrogate sisters that we go to and we chat and we can sort of be quite open about our sort of nervousness about change. Um, You know, and I have really great girlfriends like that. And they all said, well, you know, yes, sure, you can carry on until you retire or why not just you know an opportunity like this might not come again and so I made that jump wow well we do love the I, I love the VNA as well also love the VNA TV program which I want to call yes. behind the scenes of the museum and it's not behind the scenes of the museum oh yes um, it's secrets of the museum secrets of the museum which you are uh, you feature uh, on on the show don't you that's right <laughs> yes yes so I was also you know a real an avid watcher of secrets of the museum so I almost feel that that was part of my um, induction really was the watching of <laughs> to understand what happens behind the scenes but um, I think one of the joys of being in in a museum like the V&A is that you're working with people that are at the top of their game so the conservation team and watching the way that they work and the the tenderness and care and skill that they apply to mounting a garment to mounting an ensemble Mm. it's just incredible And, and you go down into the conservation area and you see the most remarkable textiles um you know being an avid dancer I was really delighted one day when I went down and they had one of Fred Astaire's suits and uh, tuxedos and I was beyond excited oh. I should have been working on African fashion but I did sort of take a bit of a detour <laughs> so I could have a closer look at this this uh, oh. I think it's an Anderson and Shepherd um Savile Row tuxedo made for Fred Astaire and it's just for me so elegant oh and so, so what advice would you give to uh, any listeners who who may be in a similar position thinking about, you know, a career change in their 50s? Um, I would say go for it, because I think I think there are very few decisions in life that you can't uh, reverse or make another decision if it doesn't work. But I think it's absolutely worthwhile taking that leap. Obviously, look into it. Think about, you know, um, what will that new environment be like? Will it work for you? Take, you know, listen to friends' advice and weigh that up with your own feelings. But in my experience, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do in my case, because, you know, the fact remains, sadly, that, you know, uh, when you're in your sort of late 50s as a woman, particularly, you you go through that moment of almost feeling invisible and you feel that you're you can tend to think that your world might be shrinking so when you have these opportunities to try something new experience something new at whatever level I would say embrace that you know mm-hmm. embrace that absolutely yeah and you've spoken about women and the, the cloak of invisibility and mm-hmm. how we shouldn't shrink away again mm-hmm. kind of like how do you stand your ground and sort of push back against that? And again, what advice would you give to the listeners? 
I think for me, it's really trying to bring your integrated self, I would describe it as to whatever it is you're doing. And that that means, you know, accepting that you might feel a little bit vulnerable at times, but also accepting that you are a strong individual and um, strength and self-assertion can look like many different things. And I think that that was something I didn't really understand um, that I could be myself and still be, you know, often people have described me as being quite, you know, quietly spoken, being gentle, but there's a real strength in that. So it's kind of understanding that self-assertion can look like many different things. I think as well, really thinking about a friend gave me, and this is this is quite hilarious because as someone who's spent their life working in fashion, a friend gave me what we then described as the wardrobe challenge. And the wardrobe <laughs> challenge was, again, this idea of bringing your whole self to the way you put yourself together and really take time to think about what you want to wear and what makes you feel stronger, what makes you feel able to stand your ground and wearing that thing, you know, wearing that colour or that scarf or that outfit. You know, because we all, we all have certain outfits that you feel you know, it's your I'm every woman moment when you're in that (laughs) outfit, you know what I mean? And then there are other things that you feel less so, but it's really um, tuning into that and, and wearing that thing. And it's, you know, it's part armor, but it's also, you know, sometimes you do have to show off a little bit because it makes you stand your ground. So I'm a real advocate of wearing whatever makes you feel good about yourself and whatever you feel you shine in because you will sort of stand that little bit taller when you do that. It, it does that because in your TED talk, you're wearing a pair of gold shoes. Is what you feel good in, or is it, it another? It is, it is. I mean, it's up. Uh, well, shall I tell you what I'm wearing today? Yes, <laughs> tell us what you're well, wearing. Well, I'll tell you. I am wearing. I am wearing my favourite outfit actually today. Funny enough, because I have. Um, I'm giving a talk this afternoon as well, so I. I love indigo. It's my favourite colour, and I have a really gorgeous indigo um it's by a south asian designer actually and it's it's a lovely kind of quite feminine um top with a very full skirt to it it's it's a traditional asian piece and then i'm wearing that over an indigo checked dress and it's it's become a kind of signature piece that it's it's my go-to outfit when i feel i need to kind of get i need to stand my ground a little bit and be a little bit taller you know um, in a good way and so i think i i do tend to practice what my what i preach in that way and think about what i'm wearing and you know try to um engage with the wardrobe challenge you know and and be playful with clothes and we we do that when we're teenagers and then that often falls away and we feel we have to look a certain way at a certain age or we have to look a certain way in a certain context well I'm all for just being yourself and bringing that really noticing what makes you feel good and bring that to what you're doing and have you got the gold shoes on (laughs) I I haven't got the gold shoes on but they're definitely going on at some point this weekend (laughs) Got the slippers on, all the Birkenstocks. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's why I'm wearing socks and Birkenstocks. Um, So also in the TED Talk, you mentioned um, a a throwaway remark changed the course of your life. Can you explain that? Yes, so um, I often feel I want to shake that person's hand because when I – I was actually principal designer at Laura Ashley and I was – probably in my late 20s, early 30s, maybe 30, so still quite young. And um, a colleague of mine said, it's so great that you're head of design because you're not exactly an English rose. Um, and it was meant as a compliment, but it kind of rattled me. Ooh. And it threw up, yeah, it kind of threw up lots of questions. You know, what does that even mean? You know, why is it a surprise that um, someone like me, you know, of Caribbean heritage, African Caribbean heritage, why is it a surprise? And why should it be shocking that I was principal designer at, you know, this, this arbiter of um, this Englishness, a kind of a Victorian English Englishness and I felt really you know it sort of rattled me it was in the back of my mind and I carried this around literally for years 
But it was that comment that then propelled me back into education, back into art education. So I did the MA and then the PhD, as I've mentioned. But it was absolutely questions that were raised from that that question that literally changed the course of my life. Because it was when I did the PhD that I got back into visual art. I also started teaching. I started to write articles. I started to do, you know, the the public talks that I do quite regularly now. And so it was a really pivotal moment, you know, and I could have become really upset by it. I could have ignored it. I could have become upset. I could have become angry. But I think what I did do was manage to channel possibly a mixture of all of those things and a a level of confusion as well, channel all of those things into um, another creative outlet or several creative outlets um, that really it's where, you know, it's helped me to be where I am today. If that hadn't have happened, I probably would have carried on just designing in industry. And, you know, the other things that I do wouldn't have come into play. So I feel grateful for that rather strange moment and that that, that comment that changed my life. That's very gracious of you. Um, Did you reply to her in that instant or were you quite taken aback I don't think I I don't remember saying anything I don't remember saying anything it was more sort of walking away and feeling a little confused and not quite sure I mean I could see that it was meant as a compliment but it it landed really strangely it was an odd thing to say yeah no it, it is it is an odd thing to say to someone um so anyway that kind of changed the course of your career completely didn't it absolutely Um, absolutely and you know and I think my life is my life my work life has become richer for that comment you know this there's the many strands of creative expression that I now have really began after that moment and so do you see I'm just when I write about this and the little blurb that goes with the podcast I'll do a link to your TED talk because mm. you also it, it's called it's called disobedient dress isn't it so I'm sort of quite I like that title I wondered and also I think we a similar age and I wondered if you um see yourself as a sort of fashion activist a non-conformist a bit a bit about punk because that's kind of you know I grew up on the sort of tail end of punk um, um I mean it's, it's interesting because I I never think it's funny because I don't think on the one hand I don't think I am but then I there is something within me that likes to not do the expected thing (laughs) I put it that way and so you know this idea of disobedience you know and not dressing in the way that others might expect me to dress or having something you know that is a is perhaps a little unusual in an outfit, something that punctuates an outfit. I you know, and punk with a with a K punctuates an outfit. I love what you're saying, Alison, yeah. about being at the tail end of punk. <laughs> Finally I get there. Finally I have a punk attitude. I mean I've never been a punk, but I quite like that. This idea that some of the accessories that I wear might punctuate an outfit. So I think I I, I do embrace that and, and I am a real advocate of using the way that you dress yes to shore up yourself and to put your best foot forward but I think to also um, be a little unexpected feels important to me and I think particularly as I've got older I've I feel I've almost come a full circle you know when I was a teenager and I first started making my own clothes it was because I wanted to look different and I wanted my clothes to say something about myself and I think now that I'm in my um Late fifties, she whispered. Late fifties. I feel that I'm sort of, I'm sort of doing, yeah, I'm sort of doing that again. But I, I think there's a real playfulness and there's a real joy in that for me. So I, I feel I, I am a little disobedient, um, and I would encourage others to be so. I like that. I do. I like that. I kind of, and I agree. I think, yeah. I don't know. I, I also am more experimental now. Again, like you know, like you say, when you're a teenager, you're sort of trying different things out, aren't you? And trying to yes. figure out kind of what you know. I don't know your personality is, and sort of you know how you want to show up to the world. Um, and then you kind of, I, I feel like I've sort of rediscovered an element of that. And I'm, yes, I agree. I think that's yes. It, you're right. That's a great way of describing it. I feel that I've sort of rediscovered that sort of teenager art school, you know, art student 
aspect of myself that enjoys the playfulness of clothes and enjoys having you know something a little unexpected whether it's you know the gold shoes in the TED talk or I have um some what I just I think of as a really great pair of white brogues that I pop on and I love wearing those you know if I can have something really um somber on and then I pop the the white brogues on um you know or I'm very fond of large earrings this is becoming a signature so I have some (laughs) large earrings now and again but I I find that that self-expression, finding a, an outlet for your own creativity and your own self-expression feels really important. And you can do that so easily through the way that you put yourself together. And for me, that's what style is. I'm more interested in style than fashion, per se, I think, at a personal level. Oh, yeah, me too. I kind of, I, I, I'm much more interested in clothes and, you know, why why we wear what we wear um you know a, a bit of the sort of psychology behind it absolutely anyway anyway let's talk about the africa fashion exhibition at the vna which is fantastic i urge anyone who hasn't been already or even if you've been already go you know to go and see it um it's the largest africa fashion uh showcase to date do you, do you wonder what took it so the vna or so or a, a big museum so long to host a major exhibition well, I think, um, I mean, it is it is exciting. And thank you so much for your compliments on the show. But really, timing-wise, we had to do the show now because the, the contemporary fashion scene on the continent is so innovative. It's so influential. And rather like the situation with um, visual art and music from the continent, it can't really be ignored any longer. So the inspiration for the show really comes from the fact that it's the contemporary creators on the continent that are really stretching how we think fashion practice should be done. You know, they're really redefining what fashion is and changing the landscape of fashion through their practice. So it had to really happen now. Um, So that's really what I would say around timing. And so, yes, I think nothing happens before it's time in life. And again, I think that's something that we we kind of appreciate the older we or the more mature we get. We understand that everything has its time, its moment. Um, And I think now is the time for this survey show that we've created. And it's a starting point for a deeper, more sustained engagement with African creativity, African and African diaspora creativity across the board at the V&A. So this really is the beginning of something. It's, It's a wonderful thing to have had the pleasure and honour to work on, but it's absolutely the beginning of this new, deeper, more sustained engagement with the continent. Oh, well, that's quite exciting, because I was going to ask you what you're working on next. Are you allowed to say? (laughs) Do you know, I, I am finding that people ask me that now, and one of the wonderful things about the success of the show is that I'm you know, getting to speak to you, Alison, and various other people. I'm doing talks about the show. I'm doing tours around the show. But of course, it's meant that I've been so busy that the, the next project hasn't had the chance to bubble up in my imagination yet or our, you know, the team's imagination yet because we're, we're all so busy doing tours and talks, which is a wonderful thing. And, you know, I never tire of going into the space and, and I love seeing it full of, of people from all walks of life and whole families coming and visiting and really respectfully engaging with African creativity through fashion and learning about the many different African cultures that are featured there and just the way that the designers on the continent, and it's actually designers, photographers, stylists and filmmakers that feature in the show, the way that there's just a unbounded creativity and this innovation and a sense of agency. So the show begins, for example, with the work of Iman Aisi, who, um, whilst born in the Cameroon, has chosen to be part of the French couture system. So shows in Paris. And we start with this fabulous fuchsia pink Essentially, it's a trouser suit, but it's a trouser suit like no other trouser suits. It's a <laughs> wonderful drape top, yeah. but it's with this wonderfully long raffia fringe and these high-waisted wide-leg trousers in silk. 
And it's just really show-stopping. And in that first instance, when you enter the exhibition, you can see that African fashions can look like many different things. They're undefinable. It's innovative. It's luxurious. And someone like Imana Issi that sort of sits between cultures and embraces that and sits at the crossroads between many different fashion systems. And so within that one outfit, you get a glimpse of what we're trying to do through the show, which is really to consciously celebrate the vitality and innovation of what is such a dynamic and varied scene. And it's as dynamic and varied as the continent itself. And I think that that's the thrill of it. That's the joy of it, really. I mean, how easy was it to pull it all together? I think it's 54 countries, Mm. countless creatives. And, and as you said, it's kind of ready-to-wear couture, photographs, designers, experts. Did you travel wi- widely to get it all together? It was curated during lockdown. Which oh, is, so no, you it, didn't travel. <laughs> we didn't travel. But do you, know what, do you know, I think strangely that worked in our favour. So we have, I think it's around 22 countries, 45 designers that feature in this exhibition And then, as you say, the photographers, the filmmakers as well. And we're a really small curatorial team. So there are two constant members of staff, uh, myself and Elizabeth Murray, who worked with me. Um, And then we had assistant curators. We also had a freelance research consultant, Sunny Dolat, who's based in Kenya, but is connected with um, fashion experts across the continent But I think doing it in lockdown meant that I think if we weren't in lockdown, we would never have travelled to 22 countries in the time that we had. We just would never have done that. It would have been logistically impossible. Whereas doing everything digitally, we sort of metaphorically travelled to the corners of the continent. And that was one of the aims of the exhibition, was to kind of blur those old colonial boundaries between North, South, East, West and Central Africa and to take this corners of the continent approach to give our audiences a glimpse of the diversity, a glimpse of the glamour, a glimpse of the politics across the continent. And so actually doing it in lockdown helped us. But it was some funny moments though, because of course you're working with the creators on the continent and we wanted to foreground their voices within the exhibition. And so we would always have these wonderful conversations where we did a lot of listening to understand how they all wanted to be represented in the show. And we would invariably say to everyone, okay, this is how we want to work. Please, could you share maybe half a dozen ensembles that you feel, thinking about the designers, that you feel represents your work? And then we would, then we took that sort of the half a dozen shortlist from the designer themselves. And as a team, we edited down from that. So the, the creatives on the continent, their voices are woven into the exhibition. So I've, sometimes I feel that we have a massive curatorial team because it's the 45 designers were quite, you know, vocal about what they wanted to be included and how they wanted to be represented and that's precisely the bedrock of this show is this full grounding what's the kind of passing the mic to the creatives on the continent and and some of them were at the press preview weren't they yes yes it was fantastic so i think we had around 12 of the 45 um, people that um, are in the show came to the press preview and that was wonderful for them because many of them because of course they're from all over the continent you know the 20 two countries and so many of them only knew each other via Instagram or other social media platforms so it was wonderful for them to meet each other and then of course for people to come to London and see their work in the V&A and to 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 see um, the way that we've tried to approach the topic and their work in this respectful conscious way and so it was actually really moving there were lots of tears you know people and then the mannequins because the mannequins were under wrap all through um, the research and development process. But from the beginning of the project, we knew that we wanted to have as realistic as possible and as many as possible skin tone representations, for example. We knew that we wanted to develop mannequins that represented um, African or, yes, African features, so fuller lips, maybe a fuller nose, for example. 
hair textures. We knew we wanted to represent as many hair textures as possible. But this was all under wraps. So no one other than our internal um, conservation team, curatorial team and our external mannequin makers no one knew about this. And so, again, and we still see this. We go, I go into the space and I see people moved by the mannequins. Oh, the, the, the gallery upstairs, I don't know what it's called, is absolutely fabulous. It's beautiful. All the clothes. Oh, and it's, there are, I think, four categories of different types of clothes. Minimalism, mixology, Afrotopian, artisanal, I think. And that is just, it is amazing. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And so, you know, for people that don't know the gallery, um, it's, it's split across two floors, the space at the V&A. And so the, the narrative of the exhibition is split across two historical periods. So you go in on the ground floor, and that's mid 20th century to coincide with the African cultural renaissance. And it's the independence and liberation era as well. So there's this grand swell of creativity across all the arts, including fashion. So on that ground floor, you see textiles, you see um, the work of 20th century designers like Shade Thomas Farm, Chris Seydoux, Kofi Ansa, you know, the real vanguard, the pioneers of the professionalised fashion system on the continent. You also see studio photography by Hamadou Maiger, James Barner. Then as you say, Alison, you go up and you're, it, the space opens out into this circular gallery. And it, the design is such that it reflects our collaborative process and the idea of collective power and pan-Africanism. And all of the mannequins are, we would describe them as being on open display. So they're not in cases. So you get the sense of being surrounded by the bars of the African, the contemporary African fashion scene. And there are films being projected overhead as well. So you are, you're completely swathed in this, what I would describe as the brilliance of African creativity. And you see the beauty of the mannequins. You see these large scale photographs of, of gorgeous, um, you know, gorgeous black skinned people of all ages and sizes particularly if you look up into the ceiling apses where we have the projected film by Lakinogan Banwo, where you do see women of different ages, different sizes. You see men, you see, you know, people really playing with clothes, the joy of dressing up, which we've been speaking about today. You see that in the film and you see that zest for life that took place in that era of independence reflected in contemporary fashion you know we would almost describe it as a fashion revolution that's going on because the work is so innovative and influential i really like this one section and i can't remember which one it was now and a a lot of the clothes are are denim i think ah yes yes that's in the artisanal section we have work by enquo a nigerian brand and um, she's developed, Enco has developed a particular cloth that uses recycled denim to create a contemporary strip weave fabric called Dekala cloth. So she uses offcuts of denim, waste denim, to create new fabric. So her business is all around sustainability. So do have a look at her work online, Enquo. And then we also have work by Lagos Space Programme, um, who actually, I think they're just, um, I think they've been nominated for the Walmart Prize, but their work is absolutely gorgeous as well. And so they work primarily in indigo. I've already de- de- revealed my love of indigo. Oh God, same here. I love denim and indigo. It's like, oh, I went straight over to that point and I was like, oh, look at this. It's I know, absolutely. But the thing about Lagos Space Program is they take a traditional textile technique called adare, which is resist dye indigo. So it's either tie and dye or it's resist dye through paste. And um, they use it. So their designs are very contemporary. So they might use a graffiti pattern in their adore print, or they might, some adore forms are, they're tie and dye, but you tie the fabric with raffia. And so they leave the raffia in, so you get this wonderfully scrunched up indigo fabric. And so their work is stunning. And they also um, create fabulous brass jewellery, so brass bells and so on in the outfit in the show. So that's Lagos Space Programme, definitely one to look out for. And they're very inspired by Yamamoto and the other Japanese designers, and they kind of fuse that with 
Nigerian inspired rappers, eros, you know, the, the rap lower, the rap that goes around the lower half of the body. So they have a wonderful kind of coming together of many different cultures, but usually worked in this indigo dye process. Absolutely stunning work. You mentioned uh, sustainability and it is slow fashion, isn't it? Because the garments are made by local craftspeople. It's interesting because I'm, we deliberately didn't have, or we felt we couldn't have a sustainability section in the show, largely because sustainability is ground zero for the designers in the show um, across the board. And so many of them, for example, something might be factory produced, but it might be hand finished by local artists. And if you think about the work of Artsy Ifrash, um, which is a wonderful embroidered piece that opens the contemporary floor. So there's that oil, you know, Enquo using recycled denim, or there's the slow fashion of Ewamete, which is all about natural dyeing, hand dyeing, hand woven organic cotton. Or at the other end of the spectrum, you have a brand like Tongaro, um, who deliberately makes short runs of things. So she will buy fabrics that are maybe the tail end of a run of, of cloth. And so they're limited editions. So there's no desire to produce reams and reams of excess waste, for example. So many, I would say that all of them have an element of sustainability, where sustainability is about the care for people. So Awa working with local women to weave her organic hand-dyed cotton pieces, or it's care for the environment, so someone like Tongaro, not creating excess, not creating waste. And so this, this idea of environment and people is a common thread that connects the creatives in the show. And one of the things that um, became very apparent through research, to, through the research process and through the conversations with the people in the show was the fact that for many vernacular cultures across the continent were always sustainable. And the fashion system on the continent, it's not like the fashion systems in the global north, where we had that break with, I think many cultures would have been sustainable originally. Though, you know, I think the waste that we see within fashion, it comes from largely from fast fashion. It comes from, you know, the slightly warped fashion system and almost a, an undervaluing of clothes and undervaluing of textiles. Um, so that's the sort of throwaway culture that we have in the global north. So there was always a sense in speaking to the creators on the continent that that break with a sustainable way of living where it's people and environment and a valuing of things, a valuing of textiles, that break didn't happen. And people are choosing not to make that break, not to go towards follow the global north into a fast fashion way of being. People are consciously saying, well, no, we don't. We're choosing not to do that. For us, slow fashion has always been our way of life. Slow fashion care for people, care for environment, a valuing of textiles, a valuing of people yeah. is, where, is the path that we're choosing to follow. You've spoken about the power of fashion and textiles to speak. Mm. And I think there's, there's a quote in the exhibition that says, and I can't remember where, where it is from, but it's, cloth is to the African what monuments are to Westerners. Mm. Yes, so that's, um, that's by the artist Sonia Clark. Um, and it's often um, also attri attributed to Eleanor Sui, but I think it's Sonia Clark that said that first. And I think it's it comes down to the the value that's placed and the importance that's placed on fibre and fabric, you know, the importance of cloth. It's something that is really treasured. You know, it's something, if you think about some of the textiles on display in the exhibition, whether it's commemorative cloth, so commemorative print cloth, it's a, it's a textile tradition on the continent, largely West African and Central African are the, the ones that are featuring in the Africa Fashion Exhibition. But it's literally that moments, special moments are written, literally written, printed on the cloth. So actually there's one piece from South Africa and it's an ANC fabric with it's commemorative cloth with Nelson Mandela um, on it and it's it's a it's a very recognizable design and so commemorative cloth is that tradition of literally writing commemorating a moment 
on fabric. And of course, these fabrics would have been worn and often, and that's why in Africa fashion, it was really important to show them wrapped on a body so to show that this is still fashion. So there's that tradition, but also, you know, thinking about some of the woven traditions like Kente, where particular patterns may have meant something. Um, you know, particular proverbs are attached to certain designs. But I think the other thing that it's important to say about cloth on the continent, yes, they are rather like monuments and they're valued, but they're also valued purely for their aesthetic um, importance as well, you know. And when it comes to contemporary fashion, there are many designers that just want to make beautiful clothes. So there isn't necessarily a deeper meaning around them but I would say that there is an appreciation and a value uh, a valuing of textiles that perhaps um, in the global north we've lost. What do you hope the exhibition achieves? I hope that people um, do have a glimpse of the potential, the possibility, the brilliance of African creativity and we've tried to use um, fashion as a catalyst to open up people's eyes and minds to the diversity of the continent, its histories and cultures. So I hope that people come away inspired and wanting to find out more about the continent, wanting to respectfully engage with creativity across the board. Because as we were saying, yes, it's fashion, but there are garments, there are textiles, there's photography, there's film. So we hope that this gives people a glimpse of African creativity within the arts. It's so true, isn't it? We do tend to focus on the bit, the you know, the four fashion capital. We still focus on like New York, London, Paris, Milan. What have you learned from the exhibition and putting the ex- curating the exhibition and bringing it all together? My goodness, I feel that I learn every day. I think at a practical level. I've, I've just learned about museum praxis, museology, as we would call it. I've learned little bits about conservation and all the other aspects of putting on an exhibition in a museum like the V&A. I've learned so much from the creatives on the continent. I've become more aware of my own, um, of the differences between being of African heritage on the continent and being of African heritage in diaspora. Um, and the nuances of that. But I, I honestly feel that I go in daily and I learn something and it's from the people around me, but it's also from the creatives that that challenge challenge me and challenge the team, that make me question things. You know, I had a wonderful conversation with um, the poet Yomi showed as part of um, the Africa Fashion exhibition program of events we did a talk event together and I came away and my head was spinning and he really kind of made me question my thinking and you know and he said to me you know why is it that as African heritage creatives everything we do is seen seen as political when sometimes we're just being and that really made me think you know so I feel that I meet people and they I learn and I question my own thinking I question my own practice so I've learned you know philosophical things I've learned practical things I've learned about myself you know and the joy for me of meeting with creative person after creative person of African heritage has personally been so enriching as someone of color who worked in industry for 35 years and very seldom saw anyone that looked like me to meet these young people, albeit online mainly, but meet largely young people with a very clear idea of who they are, clear idea of what they want their brand to be, you know, exercising their agency, working sustainably. It's just been such an inspiration Thank goodness I made the leap because I honestly, I do. I just feel so inspired by the people within the museum, the work they do, and all the creators on the continent that I've met. And I I continue to meet because, of course, my work is ongoing. So whilst I haven't had the chance to think about what the next exhibition project might be, um, one of the things that I've been brought in to do is to extend our holdings of African and diaspora fashion and textiles. So I'm still looking at new work. I'm still looking at new practitioners. I still have um, 
I'm still able to um, do studio visits, acquire work, do that part of the role as we try and think as a team what the next exhibition project might be. And so I'm constantly learning. It's honestly, it's been an absolute joy. It's been an absolute joy working on this project. Brilliant. Well, I'm, I for one, I'm glad that you took the job. And I think, <laughs> and I think the exhibition is fantastic. Thank you. It's, it's really wonderful. So I'm going to move on to quick fire round now. These, I call these the grown-up guide questions, and I ask all my guests. So here we go. I'm exhausted. How tired are you? Beyond exhausted. <laughs> so is that is that workload is that the because of the is it's the end of the year is it because of the exhibition is really full on it's really the workload the exhibition and the exhibition program has been really full on so my diary is completely chock-a-block full of talks and meetings and tours um events as well so speaking engagements and of course, everyone tries to cram as much in before Christmas. So I think the next two weeks are going to be particularly busy. So beyond exhausted. Oh, <laughs> it sounds a little bit to me like kind of writing a book. When I wrote a book, I thought, you know, I submitted the final draft and then it went and stuff. And um, and, and uh, actually, even after that, even when it was published, I thought, great, that's it, finished, jumped on. And it's not, there was like a lot, you know, then there's all the promotion and they sort of like all of that work around it. So it kind of, it, you know, it, it's something that I think you're probably, you're going to be really busy up until the end of the exhibition, aren't you? You're right. And and no one told me that. So I did. I'd rather like you and your book. I thought when the exhibition opened, that was it. I'd have my weekends back. I'd be able to loll about. I'd be going on spa breaks, you know. But I really <laughs> hope that hasn't happened at all. I've just been busy doing other things. Is the exhibition going to go on tour? It is, yes. So we're literally just in conversation with various different uh, museums around the world. Um, and it will be out on tour until 2026. Oh. So, <laughs> so you can have yeah. a holiday then. <laughs> I can have a holiday then. I'll be living with, with African fashion until 2026. Oh, wow. And how, what's, the, what, what's the best that we've been, we've spoken about age a, a, a bit already, but what do, you, mm. what do you think the best thing about getting older is? I think it's having, um, for me, it's having an inner confidence um, and recognising, you know, we spoke a bit about bringing your integrated self to everything. And so this inner confidence, I think, is the best thing about getting older. And being able to sort of say no or being able to stand your ground is great. And I, I sometimes feel I can legitimately ignore technology. I can yeah. make the choice. <laughs> yeah, I could, that is our age. <laughs> <laughs> And um, what are you reading right now? Oh, I've been reading Yomi Shode's Mannerism, dipping it in and out of that. So it, um, Yomi Shode's a poet, and I think he's up for various, T.S. Eliot Prize, I think, at the moment, as, as and many others. But his book Mannerism is really interesting because it's about masculinities um, from his perspective, growing up in London, being of African heritage. And it is just a beautiful book. So I dipped into it and I do try to read bits of poetry here and there I'm a real fan of Mary Oliver and John O'Donoghue Padre Gotuma so I do dip in and out of poetry and so I thought I would just dip into Yoma's book and I've ended up sort of reading it because it's just so good and it's his language use where he slips and slides into from standard English into kind of local kind of street style to then, um, I believe he's Nigerian, so he'll slip into Yoruba as well. So, But it's just beautifully written. A real, you know, I feel he's a real craftsman when it comes to words, um, the rhythm on the page. And I, so I would definitely recommend that. You need to check it, check it out. And what are you watching on telly? Oh, I do like a drama. So the most recent thing I've been watching is probably The Pact, uh, so I, I like I like anything that has a sort of a thriller element, and I tend to blitz on, on sort of box sets. So I I might have a whole weekend. I call them my lock in weekends, where I watch <laughs> you know back to back programs. So yeah, so the Pact is the latest thing that I've been watching. Oh, I don't know that. 
Yeah, it's really good. I'm a real iPlayer fan. So any BBC drama, I'm there. I oh. suppose my guilty pleasure is probably Gogglebox. <laughs> oh, I love Gogglebox. I really love Gogglebox. It's a great way to relax, I think, if you've had a busy week. <laughs> and I'm my favourite. I'm from Blackpool, so I love the brother and sister from Blackpool. Oh, um, yes. I think that they're just really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite food and drink, or food or drink, or both? Uh, Favourite drink is cremel. Um, I have I have a friend who's a real wine buff, and she put aside Prosecco in favour of cremel and introduced me to cremel, and I, I love it. I love it. So that's my favourite drink. I think favourite food, I do love seafood, um, but I also, I have kind of moments where I need rice and peas therapy so I will go a bit sort of yes I will go back to my roots and I'll make jerk chicken and rice and peas particularly again if I've had a busy work period I think no I need rice and peas therapy and I'll I'll make that for myself. What are your favourite feel-good clothes? What, what do you feel good in and how do you know when an outfit feels right? I have a wardrobe of dresses and I someone sort of said to me you're very feminine and I remember thinking really but I wear dresses because you just put them on and you're good to go and I haven't got to worry about you know you know with with separates what do you do with the join I always think you know, what do you, do? <laughs> yeah. you know do you have a belt do you wear the top outside or inside so I'm a real advocate of dresses and almost my the entire wardrobe is full of dresses and I feel that I need to be able to move with ease in what I'm wearing. I don't like feeling constrained in any way. So, yeah, so sort of a sweeping dress is probably what I, my style go to. And often, as I say, indigo I love, navy blue. So my wardrobe is, is quite simple, it's elegant, and it's largely dresses, largely navy blue dresses. And do you think you have a style signifier? Is there anything that your friends would say, oh, yeah, that's very Christine? Yeah, I think it is this um, love of dresses, but um, quite sort of simple, but with an interesting silhouette or an interesting sleeve. I think that that's what people would say. Oh, it's it's simple, it's elegant, but there's something a little bit different about it. That's probably my style signifier. And finally, what's the most important piece of advice you've ever been given? That's a good one. I would say... um, I'm very much my father's daughter and people comment on how similar I am to my father. And one of the things that he always said was, Christine, you have to move good with people, move good with people. And I think that that's brilliant advice. So I I try to sort of treat people with respect. I try to get along with people while standing my ground. And I think it's given me gifts of negotiation which has really helped you know in terms of putting on Africa fashion and working in the fashion industry for 35 years which is a really tough environment I think this this thought this idea of moving good with people has really stood me well that is lovely actually I like that kind of move good with them like move along with them in in a positive way yeah yes absolutely absolutely Christine, thank you so much. It has been really lovely to talk to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. I know you're really busy. So thank you for giving up some time uh, to talk to That's Not My Age. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Please come back soon. And it'd be absolutely brilliant if you could review the podcast on iTunes and also on that'snotmyage.com. I know that sounds like a lot, but I would appreciate it very much. And don't forget, it's not about age, it's about style.